Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast, and thanks for checking in. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. For the past few weeks, we've been in our annual City Church at the Movie series. Throughout this series, we look at films that have received an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture and speak from the intersection of culture and the gospel. To conclude this year's installment of City Church at the Movies, I had the pleasure of focusing on La La Land. We're going to pull up the first slide as I begin this. Uh, Author Brendan Manning once wrote, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. So I think it's important from the outset to invite you guys to not feel like you're in church and to not only pay attention to what Brendan Manning is referring to here as your light side, your Sunday morning side, but I also want you, you know, in your own privacy, you don't have to get up and tell us stories, but I want you uh, to invite you to think about your dark side, your shadow side. So that we can understand ourselves more, and as Brennan Manning says here, so that we can understand what God's grace means. We'll leave that quote uh, up on the screen for a minute. As I welcome those of you who are new to City Church, uh, you're joining us at the conclusion of a series that we do every single year. Really, it's our only tradition here at City Church, and it's called City Church at the Movies. In this series, we look at several films that have received an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. It's a little bit different uh, than how we usually roll on a Sunday. So if this is your first time here, just know that. Personally, uh, I'm really fond of this series as a guy that didn't grow up in church uh, because film as an art that tells stories, as a storytelling art, often gives us really clear insight into the wholeness of life. doesn't shy away from the complexities and especially the, the dark side, the shadow side of life, the hurt and pain, the fear, brokenness, evil, corruption, confrontation, selfishness, and self-exposing truths. Art, film, the tell story does a great job at telling the whole story, or as Manning wrote, exposing the dark side, dealing with the shadow side. When we're in a place where we can admit our whole story, right, not only our light side, but our dark, dark side as well, we can really begin to learn who we are. And we can really begin to comprehend what God's grace actually means. If God's grace is only for our niceness, our kindness, our goodness, and not for our evil and our deception, then it really doesn't mean anything. So our objective in this City Church at the Movies series is to see in and through the work of our culture, right? Not turning necessarily first to the Bible, but turning to the art that our culture makes. We want to see more of ourselves in these films, and we want to see what God's grace means. Further, as we leave this place, a willingness to engage culture, to go into the world and into the lives of men and women, provides an incredible opportunity for all of us to see what God is up to in a place that isn't like this. So I want to encourage you all with that. Go into people's lives. Go into the world. Go into culture. Thus far, we've looked at Lion and, uh, Lion and Hell or High Water, and you can hear both of those sermons uh, through our podcast or on the City Church Evansville app. 
I'd encourage you all to check that out if you haven't. Uh, Today, it's my distinct pleasure. Jeff has been acting like it's a punishment, but it's my pleasure to deal with the film La La Land. So let's check out the trailer. Two options. You either follow my rules or follow my rules. Capiche? Thank you. I can do it a different way. No, that's, that's fine. Thank you very much. I just heard you play, and I want to... It's pretty strange that we keep running into each other. Maybe it means something. I doubt it. Yeah, I don't think so. You could just write your own rules, you know? Write something that's as interesting as you are. What are you going to do? I have my own club. Is that going to happen every time? I think so. to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist. You're holding on to the past, but jazz is about the future. Maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. It's like a pipe dream. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromise. It's very, very exciting. If the soft keys uh, in the very beginning of the trailer didn't get me, I'm going to be honest. I was sold at Ryan Gosling in that suit at the piano. I had to see this film. Needless to say, I scored the tickets. My wife and I checked it out. We loved it. And it seems that we weren't the only ones. La La Land is arguably the most celebrated film that we've looked at thus far in this series. Listen to this. Winner of six Academy Awards, including Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Cinematography. Winner of a record-breaking seven Golden Globe Awards. Winner of eight Critics' Choice Awards. A quick show of hands. Who all has seen La La Land? Fellas, you don't have to be embarrassed. Raise your hands high. For the rest of you, do you even have a heart? I mean, check your pulse. Why didn't you check this out? Here are a few critic reviews. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone deliver a singing love letter to musicals, to love, and to Los Angeles. New York Daily News. We'll bring this one up on the screen. La La Land is a film that reenacts with rare originality a classic role for the movie medium. Escapist entertainment in troubled times. The real tension in La La Land is between ambition and and love, and perhaps the most up-to-date thing about it, is the way it explores that ancient conflict. Ambition and love. 
Some of you may remember when Jeff introduced this series, he said he wasn't a fan of musicals, so I think this review was for him. Audacious, retro, funny, and heartfelt, La La Land is the latest great musical for people who don't like musicals. And will slap a mile-wide smile across the most miserable of faces. Emma Stone plays Mia. An actress, and Ryan Gosling plays Sebastian. He's a jazz musician. They're both struggling, starving artist types, trying to make a life out of their passion and out of their craft. They live in Los Angeles, where Mia shares a house with three roommates, all women, all actors. Sebastian has a dark and drab little apartment full of unpacked boxes and jazz relics. In a hilarious scene, early in the film, Sebastian walks into his apartment and he's startled by his sister there, who he didn't invite and he didn't know would be there. She criticizes him for how he's living and what he's doing with his life, or in her estimation, what he's not doing with his life. She's lounging on a stool, snacking, and all that Sebastian is worried about is the stool that she's sitting on. He tunes her out and obsessively goes over to her. Get off the stool. Get off the stool. He's only worried about the stool. He erupts. Hoagie Carmichael sat on this stool. Indignantly, she gets up, dismissing this passion as foolishness, and says, I got you a throw rug. He says, I don't need a throw rug. He's a man of utility and conviction. No excess. She says, what if I told you Miles Davis peed on it? He says, that's almost insulting. Is it true? When are you going to unpack these boxes? When I unpack them in my own club. You see, that's Sebastian's singular focus to open up his own jazz club. A jazz club that he almost purchased until he got caught up in a bad deal. So each day he goes five miles out of his way to get a cup of coffee across from the club and just look at the club. Sit there and stare at it. Speaking about that behavior, his sister says, it's like a girl broke up with you and you're stalking her. Speaking of girls, I have one that I want you to meet. I don't want to meet anyone. You'll like her. I don't think I'm going to like her. Does she like jazz? Probably not. Then what are we going to talk about? Get serious, his sister replies. Sebastian says, I had a very serious plan for my life to open the club, but I got shanghaied. His sister says, you didn't get shanghaied, you got robbed. What's the difference, he asked. I don't know, she says, it's not as romantic as you make it. Sebastian asks, why do you say romantic like it's a dirty word? Unpaid bills are not romantic, she says. And as uh, as the scene comes to a conclusion, he says, you're acting like life has me on the ropes. I want to be on the ropes. I'm letting life hit me until it gets tired. Then I'm going to hit back. It's a classic rope-a-dope. I'm a phoenix rising from the ashes. You see, from the outset of the film, Sebastian is oddly characterized. We're introduced to him following a commanding and choreographed, almost kitschy opening scene. Five full minutes of song and dance and drama. Set on a parking lot of an L.A. overpass. The very first song in the musical is in this introduction, and it's the number one song on the soundtrack. It's a song entitled, Another Day of Sun. And I didn't catch it initially. I mean, I was just caught up in all of the hype. But listen to these lyrics. It's, it's really so telling of where the story goes. I think about that day 
I left him at the Greyhound station west of Santa Fe. We were 17. He was sweet, and it was true. Still, I did what I had to do because I just knew. A technicolor world made of music and machine, it called me to be on that screen. That's what Joe Demanowitz is saying in his review for the New York Daily News. It's a love letter to Los Angeles. The young lady singing these first lyrics is saying that she left a love that she had with a boy who was sweet. It was real and it was true. She left that love in hope of finding a love with L.A., with the screen, with the cinema. What she's really saying is that she chose ambition over love. But again, at the conclusion of that opening scene, we meet Sebastian. He's in a vintage convertible, obsessively, manually rewinding a tape. Who still rewinds tapes in their car? Over and over, listening to a piano loop. Just so happens, as he he sits in traffic, he's behind Mia. She's in a lime green Prius, talking on a phone. Come to find out, she's actually rehearsing a script, which she reaches for in her passenger seat, and Sebastian slams on his horn behind her because traffic is freed up, and she's not moving quickly enough for him. He's in a hurry. He's actually in a hurry to go get his coffee and sit outside of that club, so he honks his horn and stares at me as he goes by. She gives him a familiar hand gesture, and that's where we see for the first time that they are blind to one another. They're blinded by their ambition. Sebastian for jazz, Mia, ambition for acting. So the film continues. We find out that Sebastian is trying to make ends meet by playing these compromising jazz gigs. A little swanky restaurant where he has to stick to the script and only play Christmas carols. He can't do what he wants to do. Meanwhile, Mia's balancing her gig as a barista with being battered at audition after audition, getting denied again and again. And that rejection, that denial, carries over to the beginning of Mia and Sebastian's relationship. You see, they cross paths again after Mia and her roommates go to a Hollywood party. Mia doesn't want to go, but she's coerced to the tune of a song called Someone in the Crowd. The song seems to masterfully tell this overarching story and sort of establishes the universal laws that Mia and Sebastian's lives are set within. Here are a few insightful lyrics from someone in the crowd. Someone in the crowd could be the one you need to know. Someone in the crowd could take you where you want to go, if you're someone ready to be found. Someone in the crowd could make you. Someone in the crowd could take you flying off the ground, if you're someone ready to be found. See, the rehearsing of these song lyrics reminds Mia of the absolute requirement, the desperate necessity of going to the party, not staying home and resting like she wanted to do because she very well may miss out on being seen by someone in the crowd. And see, there's no way that she'll be found out if she stays home. She has to put herself out there over and over. The party is everything that Mia expects. Hollywood high society, glitz and glam, all the pretty people playing their parts, but she's tired and withdraws to a bathroom. And even in her silence, she starts rehearsing those same lyrics again of someone in the crowd. She says, somewhere there's a place where I find who I'm going to be. A somewhere 
that's just waiting to be found. So Mia admits here that who she is is not who she wants to be. And that fundamental uh, idea uh, or issue of identity is at the core of her actions. And if we're honest and sensitive enough, it's at the core of many of our actions as well. Her ambition drives her to make choices that she doesn't even want to make because idea systems, like Jeff spoke about last week, are so powerful that we are their servants. Did you hear what she said? Somewhere there's a place where I find who I'm going to be. I'm not really sure who I am. What I am sure is that I don't like me as I am. But somewhere I'm going to find in me a version of myself that I really dig. Where is that somewhere? As Mia sings, we find, we find out that it's a somewhere just waiting to be found. Isn't that at the epicenter of our entire world system? Who you are and where you are isn't enough. It isn't right. It isn't good. It isn't best. It isn't beautiful. All of those things are somewhere else. But where exactly is that somewhere? Well, it's waiting to be found. So in the meantime, buy this product and wear this piece. Maybe that will make you pretty enough. No, attend this protest and cast this vote. Maybe that will make you part of the in crowd. No, retweet this and hashtag that and then you'll arrive. Look away and talk away, sound away and think away. And then let every no- everyone know what that is. And then maybe you'll find that somewhere. And whatever you do, don't listen to the still small voice inside of you that says, stay home and rest. The voice that Mia heard. No, go and try, search and put yourself out there. Be at the right place at the right time, even though you don't know where that place is and what that time is. And don't listen to yourself because you, as you are, isn't the you that you need to be. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That whole script, that whole rehearsing. Well, when the party ends, Mia finds that her car has been towed, that lime green Prius, so she walks home. And as she's walking home, she passes this quaint little restaurant, unsuspecting, where the solemn sound of piano keys are bleeding into the city air. Mia's allured by those keys, so she goes in to find Sebastian at that piano in that great-looking suit, In typical Sebastian style, he's deviated from the sheet music that he got paid to play. He's a purist, and he's plagued by it. So he's fired on the spot on Christmas. And as he walks out of the restaurant, Mia attempts to introduce herself, but he slams past her. Again, Sebastian is blinded by his passion for jazz. And Mia faces rejection. After all of this introduction and character development, the film takes a different direction, which carries us through the end of the movie. You guys who have seen it will be familiar. The remainder of the film is divided into seasons. And the first season is spring, which we're subtly made aware of by huge white letters that go across the screen. Spring. And you know what happens in spring, though, in the season, right? Things grow. So it's spring, and both Mia and Sebastian find themselves at yet another party. Mia attends out of a sense of obligation. After all, someone in the crowd may notice her. Sebastian attends because he's playing guitar in an 80s band, an 80s cover band. And that's where they finally strike up a conversation. 
Sebastian chases Mia down after she requested the song I Ran. Show your age. Who knows the song I Ran? Yeah. So uh, Sebastian chases her down, apologizes for blowing by her at the restaurant, and scolds her saying, requesting I Ran from a serious musician is just too far. Their relationship is lighthearted and playful. It's easy and bright and fun like spring. They spend their time together, inviting one another into their worlds. Mia shares with Sebastian about her love for film and acting, which she's had since a child. Sebastian champions her and encourages her to write her own play so that she doesn't have to try out for other people's roles. He tells her, you're a childhood prodigy playwright. After Mia confesses that she hates jazz, Sebastian takes her to a jazz club to experience it an educator. She says, in her world, jazz is boring, like Kenny G. It's elevator music that people talk over at cocktail parties. He rebuttals that jazz is conflict, and it's compromise. It's new, and it's very exciting. It's passion, like Sidney Bechet shooting someone because they said he played a note wrong. So, through the spring of their relationship, they're growing And they're becoming, they're moving towards one another, they're giving and sharing with one another, they're opening up and letting each other in. Then summer comes along, big white letters. They're officially an item, they're together and they're all in. Mia decides to write that play that Sebastian encouraged her to write. And Sebastian decides to get a gig with a band so that he can be paid for his talents because Mia encouraged him to do that. They're together And they're finally getting traction, making a life of their passion and craft. They're thriving, like all of life in the summertime. But every summer turns to fall. Green becomes gray. Flourishing becomes frail. The leaves turn color and they die. Warmth is replaced with the first glimpses of winter's chill. And we're taken in to the fall of Mia and Sebastian's relationship. They struggle under the weight of their workload. He's touring and she's preparing for her play. There's miscommunication and neglect. And at the apex of their relationship troubles, Mia moves from Los Angeles back to her childhood home. And while they eventually end up back in L.A. talking at Griffith Park, this conversation clarifies the direction that they're going to take going forward, which is away from love, down the one-way road of their own ambitions. Where are we, Mia asks. What do we do? Sebastian says, I don't think we can do anything because when you get this, a role that she's trying out for, you've got to give everything that you've got, everything, because it's your dream. And I've got to follow my own plan, stay here, get my own thing going. And if you saw this film, I was so frustrated at that scene. I've been enraptured by their love story. And you're just going to let me go like that at Griffith Park? This leads up to the conclusion of the film. While I won't spoil the ending, even though I guarantee it's not what you expect, I'll say this. The film ends in the season of winter. And we all know what happens in winter. So, while we're carried through the seasons of their relationship, caught up and sold tickets about a love story between two people, that's not really what the story is about at all. And the writing was on the wall. I should have seen it from the beginning. It was in the song lyrics, and it was in the reviews that I read. 
In just a few moments, I'll return to one of those reviews for my third and final observation. But first, I want to make two other brief observations. Here's my first one. Remember, this is a series about finding redemptive themes in non-Christian film, art, and understanding them in light of the gospel. The first observation is about a fascinating line that Sebastian has given. Speaking about people in L.A., and we'll put it up on the screen here. Sebastian says, people in L.A., they worship everything and they value nothing. What a diagnosis of modern man. They worship everything and they value nothing. Is there a better inroad to talk to men and women about the realities of Scripture, the hope of the gospel? We worship technology and place no lasting value on it whatsoever. We replace the iPhone 6 with the 6S, with the 7, with the 7 Plus. And I don't know if you heard, but the iPhone 8 is about to drop. Is that you? Do you find yourself there? Worship with no value. We worship sex and simultaneously place no real value on it whatsoever. The worship of sex is all around us in every type of advertisement, in hookup culture, in Tinder, in normalized first date sleeping with a stranger, the ever-evolving cutting-edge pornography industry has unlimited free streaming, every imaginable search option, and I hear they're introducing virtual reality. The valueless worship of sex. Is that you? We worship consumption. Cheap food and cheap clothes and cheap monthly payments. And all the worship leads us to more consumption, more worship of more stuff, stuff that we box up and drop off where? At the goodwill. Because we don't value any of it. They worship everything and value nothing. A second observation is on Joe Morgenstern's review. He says, La La Land reenacts with rare originality a classic role for the movie medium, escapist entertainment in troubled times. As I sat with that, I wanted to scream, escapist entertainment in troubled times? Do you realize what he's saying here? I mean, any thinking person can see that we live in troubled times, right? War and poverty, fragile global economies, multi-billion dollar banks too big to fail, getting bailouts, while working class men and women lose their savings and their houses. Racism, sexism, violence in the streets, destabilized governments, troubling times, and what help are we offered? Escapist entertainment? Pay for the front row seat to watch the band play as the Titanic goes down is essentially what we're offered. Don't deal with it. Don't go into our troubling times. Escape from them. And La La Land just so happens to be the latest in the excellent escapist entertainment. As I start kind of going in on La La Land here, I love it. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. But I think it tells a story about our culture that we need to be concerned about. Escapism is essentially what Karl Marx was talking about. He was a staunch opponent of Christianity, a formalized religion, and he has a classic paraphrased criticism. It goes like this. Religion is the opium of the masses. Opium is a painkiller. It's an escape. 
So if you find yourselves agreeing with Marx that religion is just a way to escape the realities and the pain and the trouble of life, and we also see that in La La Land, escapist entertainment, are you honest enough to see in the rest of your life where you just try to escape from trouble and pain and circumstances that you can't control? How do you escape if you're working about? Those are just... Uh, really two observations that I could spend a whole lot more time on, uh, but I want to work my way to the third and final observation from watching La La Land. And it's highlighted by Anthony Oliver Scott's review. We'll bring this up on the screen. Again, he wrote, the real tension in La La Land is in between ambition and love and the way it explores that ancient conflict. Just to get us all on the same page, uh, I have some definitions here. Ambition is a strong desire to achieve success, typically requiring determination and hard work. Whereas love is an unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. Reed, you can leave that up there. The tension between ambition and love, just how ancient is it? It exists throughout all of human history, and as we see in the scripture, even before that, before man was made, I want you to listen to the ambition of Lucifer, which you find in Isaiah chapter 14 at verse 13. Lucifer said, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you hear the ambition there? I will make myself like the Most High. Ambition, not love. Lucifer's ambition earns him hell as he's cast down out of heaven, away from God. Then, after mankind is made, Lucifer comes to Eve and crafts a conversation to get her caught up. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve says, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden or you will die. Lucifer says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. If you eat from it and do what he said not to do, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's ambition deceives Adam and Eve and gives birth to their ambition to be like God. Ambition, not love. That selfish ambition leads to the fall, the broken human state that's wreaked havoc all throughout world history. Even just looking in the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis, we see incredible consequences to humans' inclination towards selfish ambition. In Genesis 4, the Lord looks on Abel's offering with favor, but not Cain's, not his brother's. Cain murders his brother Abel, Because he desires his own success. He wants his offering to be looked at with favor. So he murders his brother. Ambition, not love. That's Genesis 4. Genesis 6, after the sons of God come to the daughters of men, they have children. Their ambition to succeed in their own terms produces what the scripture tells us. That the Lord notices that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every thought, only evil all the time. That's where man's ambition leads him, not love. 
Genesis 11, the whole world had one language, one common speech. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Mankind reaching the heavens to exalt their name, to be like God, ambition, not love. Genesis 12. And I'll stop in the Genesis track after this one. Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go. Well, of course he won't. He's a king with a kingdom to expand, and he has a million plus slaves. Ambition, not love. The same cycle, man's selfish ambition, not selfless love, has continued ever since. Ever since Adam and Eve introduced the fall. And we see the same today. Don't we? Ambition, not love, in the private sector, politics, ambition, not love, in men and women's personal lives, where as long as I succeed, it doesn't matter the cost or the consequence of my success. Ultimately, the ambition of man is not only to be like God, but to be God to be fully autonomous, to be fully in control, to have power and decision and choice. Man wants to be God, and he's willing to do anything to make sure that this ambition is fulfilled. In contrast to mankind and that disposition, there was another man, only one man, who chose love as his ambition. Not ambition instead of love, love as his ambition. The God-man. His life was marked parenthetically by two other men who chose ambition. At birth it was King Herod, at his death it was Pontius Pilate. Herod had heard of a report of a king being born. He was a king himself. He was concerned about this king, so he sent people looking for him, and when he couldn't find him, he had every boy, two years or younger, murdered. Because he had a king, kingship, and a kingdom to protect. Ambition, not love. That's at the beginning of the God-man's life. At the end, Pontius Pilate is talking to him. And in the moments before he's sentenced to death, he says, Don't you realize that I have power to either free you or crucify you? Pilate is seeking to make the God-man a servant to his will. Which is an expression of his own ambition, not his love or concern for the God-man. Ultimately, the ambition of man is not only to be like God, but to be God, even if that requires killing God. Literally, like Herod and Pontius Pilate, and ideologically, in the case of so many of us today, when we say, God isn't real, I can live as I please. God isn't true, I can define my truth. God doesn't dictate the terms of reality, I do. We ideologically kill God. But, and I'll pull this up on the screen, while the ambition of man is not only to be like God, but to be God, unexpectedly, the ambition of God is to love man. Look at that and just check it out in the comfort of your seat for a second. Does that disturb you? Does that ruffle a feather, oppose your idea about who God is? That while the ambition of man is not to be like God, but to be God, unexpectedly, The ambition of God is to love man. When God gets an A-plus on his own report card, he defines success by his love towards men and women. 
And this is made most clear in the life and work and death of the God-man, Jesus, who chose love as his ambition. Jesus, from all of eternity, existed in a love relationship with the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, Father, and Spirit. They shared an unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the well-being and the good of one another. This Trinity created all life, including us, men and women. We were made in the image of this Trinity, which is why we all long for love relationships. Frankly, it's why we spend $500 million at the box office on La La Land, even though our relationships in America are such a mess. Divorce rates are skyrocketing, domestic abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, but we're in love with love. So we spend $500 million to go watch love stories. We long for love relationships, even though we're so woefully incapable of sustaining them. Yet, at a point in time, Jesus steps out of this uninterrupted triune love relationship to become a man because the ambition of God is to love men and women. This is why Jesus is able to turn down the offer of Satan as he's perched high on a mountain overlooking all of the kingdom of the world and their glory. They're yours, Satan says, if you just bow down and worship me. But see, Jesus wouldn't worship Satan because he didn't value what he was being offered. The kingdoms of this world, they didn't appeal to Jesus' sense of ambition. His ambition was you, was your neighbor, was those you love and those you hate. More valuable than all the kingdoms of the world. See, the story of scripture isn't like the la-la land lies that were sold. A love story hijacked by personal dreams and selfish ambition. The story of scripture is about a God whose sole ambition is to love his creatures, men and women, who he created to share his triune love with, to share his glory with, to share himself with, to share eternity with. And like all ambition, it required determination and hard work. And when you want to see God at work to fulfill his ambition, look to the cross. Jesus died there alone. For the men and women who throughout all time have chosen their own selfish over selfless love. The love that they were created from, the love that they were created for, and the love that's in la-la land perverted to get into our pockets. Can I ask you as we come to a conclusion, what are you choosing? Selfish ambition or selfless love? For those of you who are honest enough, and I commend your honesty, to acknowledge that you're choosing selfish ambition, how's it going for you? Are you satisfied? Are your coworkers better off for it? Is your family better off for it? Are your children better off for it? Have you received what your ambition sent you searching for? In closing, I'll return to the quote that I started with. Reed, you can pull that up. Brennan Manning says, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story the light side, and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. The grace of God comes to all men and women whose dark side and shadow side choose selfish ambition over selfless love. The grace of God comes to all men and women through the person and work of the God-man Jesus Christ, whose ambition was to love you. Which is why Brendan Manning goes on to say, even though he's fully embraced his dark side and fully acknowledges his shadow side, he concludes that statement by saying, my deepest awareness of myself 
is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. This is the love story of God. This is the love story of Scripture. This is the love story of the gospel, of the completed work of Jesus. God's ambition is loving men and women who he created in his image, loving them into a relationship with him that lasts forever. Not at the fork in the road at Griffith Park when they go their own way for their own ambition. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, when I'm honest, I know that uh, the idea of a love story insults my intellectualism, insults uh, in a simple and beautiful way uh, all the books that I've read, all the sermons that I've listened to, all the sermons that I've preached, all the discussions and debates that I've had. Uh, But God, I know that your love story is the most true part to your whole story. It's the truest part of the human experience. We find ourselves wrestling with love, longing for love, coming back to love. Uh, Allow us, even in this moment, to see your love story afresh for those of us who have believed in Christ. For those of us who haven't, allow us to see it for the first time. Uh, That this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and given his son as a propitiation for our sins. Uh, Lord, we want to be free and lost and open in your love. So thank you for the security and the assurance that you offer us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The cross changes everything because the ambition of God is to love men and women into an eternal love relationship. That love story of God is the love story of the scripture that culminates in the ambitious work of Jesus' cross where he died as the assurance of that eternal relationship for anyone who believes. Thanks again for tuning in with us throughout this year's City Church at the Movie series. Make sure to download the City Church Evansville app and check us at citychurchebv.com. If you'd like to join us in person, we meet every Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville. We're easily accessible directly off the Lloyd Expressway. Just take the First Avenue exit south and we're two blocks down on the right. Hope to see you soon.